I can remember it like it happened yesterday. The year was 1986. It was a summer Saturday morning. I was a youth pastor in a church in inner city Toronto, and I was leading a special weekend adventure for our youth group. We had a sleepover on the Friday night, and all day Saturday, we were going to head to a, a park and, and enjoy the outdoors together. Now, what I did was, as the youth pastor, I knew there was a shower downstairs in the church in a corner. None of the young people knew this, and I wanted to keep it quiet because I didn't want anyone to use up all the hot water. So I woke up really early, like about 6 a.m. I snuck downstairs, and I used this hot shower, and then I snuck my way back upstairs towards my office. I had my shampoo, a toothbrush in my hands, and a towel wrapped around my waist. I opened the door into the church lobby, and there in the lobby were a 100 Korean Christ followers. They had a, uh, assembled together for an early morning 6 a.m. Korean prayer meeting. And the room went silent as I walked through the crowd with my dripping wet hair. I had hair then. And my towel and my shampoo and my toothbrush. And they're all bowing and saying, hello, pastor, hello, pastor, as they parted in front of me. Have you ever done something foolish or embarrassing out in the open for everyone to see? We're in the middle of a series right now that's based upon that very premise. It's a series we're calling Really Bad Examples. It's a series where we're looking at different individuals in the Bible who did some really dumb things with some really bad consequences. The story of today's really bad example begins in the second chapter of the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. By the way, a gospel was simply a first century biography. Well, the Gospel of Matthew is the life of Jesus of Nazareth as seen through the eyes of one of Jesus' first followers. Now, what was it about Jesus' life that warranted such attention? The life of Jesus was unlike any other life in human history. His miracles, his claims, his teachings, his death, his resurrection caused all kinds of controversy and crises. However, as Matthew records, Jesus was creating controversy long before he could say his first word. Jesus was causing crises long before he could take his first step. Let me show you what I mean. Read with me, starting in Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, what are they? We'll get to that in a moment. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, So where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Have you ever been seasick? I've been seasick a few times in my life. I remember once my wife and I were on a cruise together, and as we were heading back to California on the ship, we got into a storm, a bad storm, and the boat was going back and forth, back and forth. I remember being in the shower and having to put my hands on both sides of the wall just to stand up. The ship ran out of motion sickness tablets, of Dramamine. They ran out. Everyone was sick all over the ship. It was ugly. It was awful. I've been deep sea fishing three times in my life in the Gulf of Mexico. And three times in my life in the Gulf of Mexico, I was seasick over the edge of the ship. It wasn't pretty. I tell you this because the word translated disturbed in Matthew's gospel is a translation of the ancient Greek word terasso. It literally means to be stirred back and forth, 
to be queasy and uneasy. In other words, Matthew is saying the news of the birth of the Messiah made Herod and all Jerusalem sick. Now, for the longest time, that last verse never made sense to me. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. I mean, seriously, as I pictured it, hey, Herod, hey, Jerusalem, we see that your Messiah, your long-awaited Messiah King has been born. And when the Herod heard this and when the people in Jerusalem heard this, they went, oh, seriously, this is terrible news. Doesn't make sense. So what was going on back then? And what can we learn from it today? That's what we're about to discover as we dig into yet another lesson from yet another really bad example. Now, if you want to understand what was going on in the passage we just read, you have to do something that's often hard to do. You have to unlearn some things that you've learned from watching a few well-intentioned Christmas pageants or viewing a few misguided nativity scenes. A common nativity scene that you see is you have baby Jesus in the manger with Joseph and Mary, and then you've got the, the shepherds, and then you've got the wise men all gathered around, huddled around, looking at this baby Jesus. What you need to know is that never actually happened. Oh, Jesus was born in a manger, Joseph and Mary were there that night, and the, the shepherds were there, but the wise men, the magi, were not there on Christmas Eve. Matthew chapter 2 is not describing what took place on Christmas Eve. Matthew chapter 2 is describing what took place about a year and a half after the birth of Jesus. That's when the Magi arrived. Before we talk about Herod, who were these Magi, these wise men? They were the mystics, the philosophers, the stargazers of their day. They're called wise men in some translations. These people came from east of Israel, modern-day Iraq, Iran, an area that was once known as Babylon. Now, apparently, they had seen something in the constellations that led them to believe that the long-awaited Jewish Messiah king had been born. You say, now, hold on. How and why would a bunch of non-Jewish stargazers from another land know or even care about a Jewish Messiah? Don't forget that centuries before this, Israel had been conquered by the Babylonians and the Jewish priests and intellectuals were then all taken captive into Babylon. And as they interacted with their Babylonian captors, these Jewish thinkers would have shared their messianic hopes, dreams, prophecies, and expectations. And now, centuries later, these stargazers from the east saw what they believed to be a sign of the birth of the promised Messiah King from their Jewish neighbors that, had, that they'd been told about. So, these eastern mystics set out on a journey to the capital of the Jewish nation to see if this event had, in fact, taken place. Now, without realizing it, their visit triggered a time bomb in the center of King Herod's palace. Now, who was King Herod? And why did this visit trigger him? King Herod, also known as Herod the Great, was an influential leader. Now, the Romans ruled much of the known world at that time, including the Middle East. But instead of exporting entire governments to every land that they conquered, the Romans simply set up local leaders to rule on Rome's behalf. And Herod the Great was the local leader that the Romans had chosen to be their representative in Israel. 
Now, we know a lot about this man from many historical sources. As a leader, Herod had a reputation for getting things done. He built cities, a massive temple in Jerusalem, palaces, aqueducts, roads. His building projects were legendary. Herod had a vision for what his nation could be and for what his legacy would be. Which brings us to a second key fact about Herod the Great. Herod the Great was all about himself. Everything in Herod's life was about protecting and promoting himself. Everything in Herod's life was about making Herod the Great look great. Everything. Herod placed everyone in his life into one of two categories. You were either someone who could be used by him, or you were someone who was a threat to him. Now, if you could be used by him, he tolerated you, and he used you. If you were a threat to him in any way, he had you killed. Herod once appointed a 17-year-old young man to be the high priest over all of Israel. Why? Because Herod felt he could control that 17-year-old young man. But when Herod discovered that the people actually liked the young guy, Herod had him assassinated. Once, Herod heard that some people in Jerusalem were criticizing him. So he gathered 45 of the wealthiest and most prominent citizens, and he had them executed. Herod then took the land and wealth from the deceased men's families, and he gave it all to Caesar as a gift. Caesar took notice and gave Herod more power. Herod's citizens took notice and kept their mouths shut. Kings could do that kind of stuff back then. And King Herod loved to do that kind of stuff back then, because King Herod was an influential leader who was all about himself. Now, Herod the Great had his mother-in-law killed. Herod the Great had his brother-in-law killed. Herod the Great had his own wife killed. He had her strangled. Herod the Great had three of his own sons killed because he thought they might have their eyes on his throne. Herod was so consumed with his own image, power, and legacy, and Herod was so bothered by the thought that people might celebrate his death that he kept a large group of respected and distinguished and loved men imprisoned in the city of Jericho. You say, why? Because when Herod died, it was in his will that these men would be executed, thus ensuring that there would be widespread weeping in the land instead of celebrating at the news of his passing. Herod the Great was an influential leader who was all about himself. So when some traveling stargazers dropped in with the news that the new king of the Jews had been born, it not only disturbed Herod, but it disturbed the entire city of Jerusalem as well. The people feared the reaction that this news would unleash. And as it turned out, their fears were warranted. Keep reading now how Herod reacts to the news from the visiting Magi. The Bible says, When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. Why would Herod want to know where the Messiah was prophesied to be born? Because Herod was aiming his rifle. Because Herod was getting ready to take out this latest threat. So they've just told Herod where the child was supposed to have been born. Now Herod needs to find out when, in fact, this child actually was born. There were lots of children in Bethlehem, so how old of a boy should Herod be looking for? So Herod keeps digging. 
Look at what Matthew records next. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Now, the Magi weren't locals. They didn't know Herod would want to kill the child. And Herod came across to his guests as someone who was as excited as they were. So they naively shared their information with him. Okay, so Herod knows where the child was born. He now knows roughly when the child was born. All he needs to do now is to find the actual child. Now, cunning as he was, he decides to let the Magi do the legwork for him. Matthew records that, and I quote, He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. Every citizen of Jerusalem would have gagged at this line. But the Magi, they didn't know Herod. So they naively head to Bethlehem and are led to the place where the child was staying. Matthew records that on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. Notice they did not arrive at a manger or a cave or a stable. They arrived at a house. This was long after the birth of Jesus. Well, after visiting with the family, the Magi were then warned in a dream to not go back to Herod. Joseph and Mary were also warned in a dream to leave Bethlehem and to hide. So at night, under the cover of darkness, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus slip across the border into Egypt, where they'll stay until Herod the Great dies. Well, meanwhile, back in Herod's palace, he's waiting and he's pacing. As each day goes by, he's getting more and more disturbed. Finally, he was waiting long enough. He realizes he's been tricked. He realizes the Magi are not coming back. So Herod is furious, and Herod changes plans. Instead of a precision killing of a single child, Herod will do a mass killing of every male child in Bethlehem within the age range of two years old and younger, the age he assumed Jesus would be. Herod was all about Herod, and Herod hated anyone who was not all about Herod. He had the high priest killed. He had his mother-in-law killed. He had his brother-in-law killed. He had his wife killed. He had three of his sons killed. Killing a few unknown boys in a remote village was nothing. Herod the Great, an influential leader who was all about himself. Herod the Great, a man who dedicated his life to building great monuments and to building a great legacy. Well, it's 2,000 years later. History has judged him, and the results are in. And what do we find? None of Herod's monuments are still standing, and his legacy is in tatters. Now, During his lifetime, Herod built a mountain called Herodium, as a glorious place to store his tomb and to honor his memory. I've been to that mountain. My wife and I have walked it and wandered among what's left on it. It's a heap of ruins. I've touched Herod's stone sarcophagus that sits on display in the Jerusalem Museum. It had to be pieced back together again because his own people smashed it to pieces. His monuments are now ruins. His reputation is in ruins. Today, Herod the Great is great in name only. So what can we learn from this really bad example? This brings us to today's big idea. Here it is. When your greatness comes first, 
your greatness will not last. When your greatness comes first, your greatness will not last. Jesus put it this way. Let me quote Jesus. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? It's counterintuitive, but it's true. The guaranteed way to destroy your legacy is by making your life all about your life. The guaranteed way to preserve your legacy is by making your life all about being centered in Christ and serving others. It's the lesson from the really bad example of Herod the Great. When your greatness comes first, your greatness will not last. Well, as we conclude today, there's one last question we're going to try to answer. And that question is this. What can a person do to avoid following the really bad example of Herod? It's easy to read about a man like Herod and turn him into some kind of a monster. It's easy to put Herod in a category that's very different from us. Herod is evil. We, on the other hand, we are so much better than him. Hey, I've done some pretty ugly things in my lifetime, but at least I haven't killed any of my family members. Hey, I've done some things I'm not proud of in my lifetime, but at least I haven't slaughtered a bunch of innocent children. Or, hey, I hope I'm standing beside Herod on Judgment Day. That way, when God looks at me, I'm not going to look so bad. What can a person do to avoid emulating the really bad example of Herod? Well, avoid the kind of thoughts I just mentioned. And recognize the truth that at your core, there is no difference between you and Herod. At your core, there is no difference between you and Herod. At my core, there is no difference between me and Herod. His desires and my desires are essentially the same. His desires and your desires are essentially the same. The only real difference between us and King Herod is not desire, it's opportunity. Now be honest with yourself. How many times have you wanted to do something, but you refrained from doing it simply because you were afraid of what would happen if you got caught? You desired to steal that thing, but you were afraid the camera in the store would catch you, or that person at the end of the aisle was actually undercover security. You desired to take that money. You even worked out how and when you would do it, but you were afraid that it could get traced back to you, and if it did, it would cause more trouble than it was worth. You desired to harm that person. You wanted to hit them with as much force as you could muster. But you knew you would get arrested or sued, and you didn't want that on your record. How many times in your life have you been stopped from doing what you wanted to do, what you desired to do, simply because you feared the consequences in this life? What if that fear could be removed? What if there were no consequences for your actions in this life? What if you could get away with doing whatever you wanted to do? How different would your life be? How different would your life be if you had the power, if you had the authority to do whatever you wanted to do whenever you desired to do it? 
How different would your life be if you had the power of a first century king? If it was just about the desires and not about the opportunities in your life, how different from King Herod would you really be? The wise person recognizes the truth that at my core, there is no difference between me and Herod. And it is recognizing this truth that prevents us from living the lie that Herod lived. Chuck Colson once wrote about an event that took place during the trial of Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann helped to plan the systematic destruction of millions of Jews during the Holocaust. After the war, Eichmann was captured and put on trial in Israel. Now, a Jewish man by the name of Yehiel Denur, a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps, was called to testify against Eichmann. When Denur saw Eichmann in the courtroom, Denur began to sob uncontrollably. He, in fact, fainted and fell to the floor. The proceedings had to be halted due to his display of raw emotion as he was carried out on a stretcher. Years later, during an interview with Mike Wallace on the show 60 Minutes, Denur was asked about that moment. So what happened? Why did you lose control? Was it hatred? Was it fear? Was it flashbacks? Denur's answer was shocking. He declared that at that moment, when he was face to face with the Nazi monster, at that moment, when he saw Eichmann without his Nazi uniform, not surrounded by Nazi guards and Nazi flags and Nazi banners, for the first time in his life, Denur saw Eichmann for what he was, an ordinary man. Denur said, and I quote, at that moment, I was not afraid of Eichmann, I was afraid of myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I saw that I am exactly like him. Yehiel Denur recognized the truth that at our core, there's no difference. Yehiel Denur was declaring a truth that another Jewish man had declared centuries before him. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God, wrote this in his letter to the church in Rome. He said, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What Paul was teaching us is the good news of Jesus. The good news answers the bad news. The bad news is there's no difference. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short. Oh, there's incremental degrees of sin between all of us, but all of us are sinful. There's no difference between us. All have sinned, all deserve to be separated from God. All deserve eternal punishment. But Jesus came to do what we couldn't do. He came to pay our moral debt. He came to remove that punishment, to take that punishment upon himself. And then, if we accept this gift of forgiveness, this offer of forgiveness that he is placing before us today, he then comes and lives within us by his Holy Spirit. And his indwelling spirit then gives us power to live above our sinful desires, power to live beyond our sinful nature, power to live according to his initial design. Well, let's conclude. Herod the Great, an influential leader who was all about himself. Herod the Great, an imperfect man whose really bad example shows us that when your greatness comes first, your greatness will not last. Herod the Great, a man who is not as different from me as I pretend him to be.
And recognizing this reality should forever keep us close to the heart of God, depending upon the grace of God, and living by the power of God. Let's pray. God, you see us as we truly are. You see in our hearts. You see our thoughts, our desires, our intentions, our deeds. You see all of it. And you love us. And you are patient with us. And you're gracious toward us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your presence in the lives of every person who knows you as Savior. And thank you that you pursue us even when we don't know you. You chase after us and you pursue us. You desire to change us and forgive us and cleanse us. Thank you for your love, your tenacious love in our lives. And maybe you're watching here today and you've not yet responded to that tenacity of God. He has been pursuing you. He's been drawing you. He knows everything about you, your past, your present. He even knows your future. And he is calling upon you now to come to him, to trust him, to rely upon him, to receive his gift of forgiveness. If you've not yet done that, if you've not yet asked him to forgive you, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that right now. I'm gonna pray a prayer as though it is you praying. Just agree with me as you and I pray together. God, you know my heart, you know my rebellion, you know my history, you know my deeds. And I confess, I admit, I acknowledge that I am sinful, that I'm a lot like Herod. At my core, I'm no different from him. And so I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to cleanse me. And I invite you to come and live within me by your spirit, to change me from the inside out, to give me new power, a new ability, to give me new desires. Now, I know I won't be sinless and perfect from this moment on, but the Bible says, if I confess my sin, you'll be faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So I do that now. Come into my life, forgive me and cleanse me. And give me the courage to act on this decision now. In Jesus' name I pray. By his authority I pray. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, the best advice I can give you is to tell somebody about this decision. There's a number on the screen right now. Why not text that number? And by texting it, you're communicating with one of our staff members and one of our team will respond back to you. Now, don't worry, you're not joining Broadway Church. We're not tricking you. You're not gonna be placed on some kind of mailing list. We simply want to offer our help to you in any way we can to help you take the next step in your journey. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us at Broadway Church today. I hope you're with us again next week as we continue our Really Bad Examples series. God bless you. Thanks for being with us today.